Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. This week, we have something a bit different for you. We're on the road with Logos Bible Study as Dr. Creasy takes his Logos students on a journey through the Holy Land. Now, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. All right, here we are at Caesarea Maritima, and all of this is going up on the podcast. So everybody say, Welcome, yay, here we are, okay, good, all right, very good. We are at Caesarea Maritima. Now, we're sitting in the theater at Caesarea. Every Greco-Roman town had a theater. Now, this theater is rather unique because if you look to your left, that's the Mediterranean out there, which is west, right? So right behind the theater is east. Nearly all Greco-Roman theaters faced either north or south. Why would that be? Because of the sun coming up and down. You don't want the actors of the audience looking into the sun. But this theater faces west. Rather unique. Now, if you walk out to the Mediterranean here, turn left on the beach and keep walking south, about 30 miles, you'll go to Joppa. Remember we left Tel Aviv? We could see the church, Joppa. Who sailed from the port at Joppa? It's an ancient port. Jonah. Jonah, right? Jonah sailed from Joppa. Also, something else happens there that I'm going to tell you about in a little bit. So if you go out, you turn right, you're going north up the coast. Okay. Now I'd like to turn to Acts chapter 10. I'm reading to you from Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Now one day, at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision. So it's not a dream, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he's wide awake. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa, 30 miles south, to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So right by the Mediterranean, 30 miles south. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that happened and he sent them south to Joppa. So 30 miles south would be about a day's walk for military guys going with purpose. Now, about noon on the following day, As they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter, the city Joppa, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now we'll talk about the architecture of homes when we get up to Capernaum. But a home would have been built in a square with a courtyard in the middle. And if you go up the side steps to the roof, that served like a front porch. You could put your plastic lawn chairs up there, look out at the Mediterranean, and have a fine time. And that's where Peter was. He was up on the roof praying. It was a time of prayer, right around noon. He became hungry, 
and he wanted something to eat because right down below, Mrs. Simon the Tanner was cooking a meatloaf and the smell's <laughs> wafting up and Peter is praying. Now, he fell into a trance. Well, that's a little weird. You've been to the beach, no doubt. In the summertime, really nice day, the sun's shining, you're lying there on the beach, your eyes are closed, you're not asleep, but you're kind of drifting and you can smell hot dogs cooking and you hear the waves and, and your mind is wandering a bit. I think that was Peter. So as he's lying there, sitting there in his lawn chair, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. So it had sheep and goats, but it also had pigs and shrimp and lobsters, all the kosher and non-kosher food. And a voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no way, Jose. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. I'm not going to eat that. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now this happened three times. And immediately then the sheep was taken back up to heaven. And Peter, oh, is that a weird thing? Now, while Peter was wondering about all this, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and they stopped at the gate and they were knocking. They asked if Simon was there, known as Peter. Well, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and don't hesitate to go with them. I've sent them. So Peter went down and he said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion up there at Caesarea. He's a righteous and God-fearing man, respected by the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so he could hear what you have to say. So then Peter invited the men into the house and they stayed overnight. And the next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from down at Joppa and they headed up here toward Caesarea. The following day, they arrived at Caesarea, so another 30-mile walk that day. Cornelius was expecting them because he sent his men. He knew they'd stay overnight. He knew how long it would take to get back. So at his house, Cornelius' house, right up here at Caesarea, he had his family and friends waiting for them to come. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, and he fell at his feet in reverence. Peter was horrified. He said, oh, please don't do that. Get up. Hey, I'm just a man. Don't bow down before me. Now, while talking with him, Peter went inside and he found a large gathering of people. He said to them, Now, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles did not mix. Because if you're a Jew and you socialize with a Gentile family, then you become friends, you date their daughters, you intermarry, and within three generations, Judaism goes away in that line of the family. 
So you don't choose, don't mix with Gentiles and do that. And Peter said, you know that it's against our law to mix with Gentile people. But Peter had been thinking about that vision with the clean animals and the unclean animals. And it wasn't about food necessarily. It was about Jews and Gentiles. So Peter said, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So Cornelius tells the story about the angel appearing to him, and Peter tells him the gospel message. And then, of all things, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his family. They're all speaking in tongues. And Peter said, well, I'll be darned. Who would have thought? Because everyone, 100% of the church was Jewish in the very early years of the church, in the 30s and 40s. And now, Gentiles are becoming believers. Nobody ever imagined that would happen. And Peter said, well, I'll be darned. And then, after baptizing Cornelius and his family, they become the first Gentiles to become believers. Peter then went back to Jerusalem because he had some explaining to do. You know, you don't mix with Gentiles. Well, Peter went to their house, ate with them, and now Gentiles are part of the family. So he had to go back and tell the other apostles what happened. And they said, well, I'll be darned. Who would have thought? So the first Gentiles come into the church right here at Caesarea Maritima. Right here. And when Peter was here, this theater would have been here, and everything we look at would have been here. Now, another story happens here a couple chapters later. Herod Antipas. We read. This is in chapter 12, beginning at verse 19. Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He stayed at the palace here at Caesarea. Now when we leave the theater, we're going to see the footprints of the palace. That's where Pontius Pilate would have lived. Okay, later, when Paul is arrested, he's brought down here to Caesarea Maritima. Paul would have stayed there. So a lot of things happen here in Caesarea. Now, Herod went down here to Caesarea, and he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, north of here. That's Lebanon, right? So go out to the Mediterranean, turn right, you can walk up there. It takes a while, but you'll get there. So he had been quarreling with them. Why? There was an ancient port at Joppa, which was getting pretty run down at the time, and another major port at Tyre. Hiram, king of Tyre in the Old Testament, he controls the maritime routes in the Mediterranean from that port. When Herod the Great built an artificial deep water port here with the breakwater, right? if you go all the way south, you'll get to Egypt. And what happens in Egypt? The Nile River flows north 4,000 miles, empties into the Mediterranean, huge amounts of water, forming a longshore current from south to north. So if you go out here into the Mediterranean, you'll feel a current pulling you north because of that longshore current. So if you're going to build a deep water port, it's pretty shallow out there, you've got to dredge it. What will keep that port from filling in with sand? You've got to build the breakwater, right? When we see the port over here, today, well, this is back in the 80s and 90s, 
uh, in the early 2000s. They were dredging that port and doing the underwater archaeology. Today, there's a dive shop here in Caesarea that will take you on an underwater tour of the port itself. It's really cool. It's not very deep. It's like 20, 25 feet. But uh, they'll take you on an underwater tour of that. So you have the longshore current going up. Now, Herod builds an artificial deep water port here. And what does that do to the port at Joppa and Tyre? It eliminates them. It's like having you, you build a freeway and you don't make any exit ramps to get to the gas stations, right? They have to go to your gas station. So Herod was having a big dispute with the people in Tyre and Sidon because of the maritime trade. So they send a delegation down here to Caesarea to meet with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Right? Not that this land was feeding theirs, but all their trade was cut off up there. So they want to make a deal, a trade agreement. And they come here to the theater, which is where they're going to be. They're sitting right here where you are now. Over, see the arch over here? Go through there, turn a little bit to the left, the palace is over there. So Herod Antipas would come from the palace, enter here onto the stage while the delegation sat here. And we read in Josephus that he was wearing a robe made entirely of woven silver. And he walked out onto that stage in the morning. Now, where's the sun? See it back there? He walked onto the stage in the morning and the sun glittered off of that silver garment. And the people said, oh, he's a god, look at him. And he said, Harry Edifus said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and we read here in Acts that on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, the woven silver robes, sat on his throne here at the theater and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, it's the voice of a god. And immediately, because Herod did not praise, uh, give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> I think that is such a cool story. And, and it happens right here. Now, Josephus gives us more information, right? While the meeting was going on and the people were saying all this, Herod has these terrible abdominal cramps, right? And at one point he just collapses and they take him back to the palace and a few days later he dies after three or four days of excruciating pain. What happened to him? He almost certainly had a case of guinea worms in the water. Now you can drink the water here. <laughs> but back, the whole kind of sub-Sahara region, guinea worms lay microscopic eggs in the water. And when you drink the water, the eggs go inside you and ultimately they hatch. And the worms then have to come out, right? And the way they come out is to eat their way out. And you can go online and Google guinea worms and you will see really gross pictures of people with worms, like six inches of worms coming out of their abdomen and their feet and their shoulders. They get all through your bloodstream, right? And they eat their way out. 
And that's almost certainly what happened uh, here with Harry Anipus right here at the theater. So you can drink the water here. Personally, I drink bottled water. But the only other thing I want to mention is when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem around AD 57, mid 57, maybe 58, he's arrested in Jerusalem and the Jewish Sanhedrin accuse him of starting a riot. Well, he, he did, well, he sort of started the riot, but because of the turmoil in Jerusalem, they were going to lynch him, right? A mob was beating on him, and he had to get pulled away, and he asserts his Roman citizenship. Paul was a Roman citizen, and that carries big rights, especially the right of a fair trial facing your accuser. As soon as he asserts his citizenship, his status changes entirely. He is no longer a prisoner under arrest. He's now under protective custody from the Jewish mob in Jerusalem because the mob was so big. There was an assassination a, a plot going on, and he's transferred down here to Caesarea. And he's not in jail here. He's not in prison. He's in the palace, and he's staying with Governor Felix. He's there for two years. And I think Paul rather liked that, in fact. But then after Felix's term is up and he rotates out, the new governor comes in, Festus, and he knows nothing about Paul. At that point, Paul said, I'm appealing my case directly to Rome. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to do that. So again, he's not under arrest. He's been accused and he's cooled his heels here for a couple of years. I think Paul really needed the break at that point. And then I appeal my case to Rome. He gets on board ship here at the harbor and he sails for Rome. And we know the story of the shipwreck and all that happens. But all of those stories take place right here at Caesarea Maritima. And here we are. All right. Thank you. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget to visit LogosBibleStudy.com to find out the many ways to study with Dr. Creasy in live classes, in the online classroom, and on his teaching tours. Now, back to the program. So we are at Beit Shan. Beit Shan. When Jesus would leave Capernaum and head for Jerusalem, he would walk south from Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee, right down here to Beit And then he would pass through Beit cross the Jordan River to the other side, and then head south all the way down to Jericho, cross back over, and then go up the old Roman road, 17.3 miles, to Jerusalem itself. Beit is a really important place. It's one of the 10 Decapolis cities. Nine of them are on the other side of the Jordan. Only one is here on the west side, and that's Beit it was the capital of the Decapolis, so a very, very important town. If you look straight ahead, we see the tell in the background. That's the Old Testament site. If we dug down through that, we'd have Old Testament archaeology. Right beyond the tell, the Jordan River runs from left to right, headed south into the Dead Sea. Mount Gilboa is behind us. Now, I want to tell the story of David and the death of King Saul. Saul was Israel's first king, 970 to 9, I'm sorry, 1050 to 1010. 1050 to 1010. The very first king of Israel. 
God didn't want a king. God said, I'm king. Okay? You're not to have a king. But the people wanted a king. God said, fine, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And they choose Saul. They choose Saul. And why did they choose Saul? Because he looked like a king. He was a head taller than everybody else. He had long flowing hair. Never trust tall people with long hair. (laughs) But he becomes king. Although he looks like a king, right out of central casting, he didn't have the heart of a king. And Saul is crushed by the weight of kingship. We'll talk more about Saul when we go to En Gedi down at the Dead Sea. That was David's hideout when he was on the run. So we'll tell more about Saul down there. But Saul becomes king. The Philistines are the primary enemy. And the Philistines have been waging war with Israel over and over and over again. But the final climactic battle will take place at Mount Gilboa. Saul and his army will encounter the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. He doesn't know what to do. He needs help. Samuel, who was the prophet and the one who anointed Saul, is dead. Saul goes to the witch of Endor to raise up Samuel and get advice. We'll tell that story later on in our day. Not today, but when we get to Nazareth. So Saul is going to encounter the Philistines of Mount Gilboa. He does, and the battle rages. All the while, David is down south. David, at this point, is working for the Philistines, right? And David was supposed to, he and his men, were supposed to lead the battle against Saul. But he gets off the hook rather cleverly because if he went to war with Saul, he would end up killing King Saul. And how could he become king? David had no claim to the kingship whatsoever. The kingship was with the tribe of Benjamin and King Saul. David had no claim. Well, you could say, well, God appointed David king. Great. I could tell you God appointed me president of the United States. And when we get back home, I'll take office. Well, who's going to believe that? And who would believe David? David, after all, has been a wanted outlaw for 10 years on the run, working for the enemy, the Philistines. So how can David ever become king? Well, Saul at the Battle of Mount Gilboa will die. And that's where I want to enter our story as we sit upon the ground and tell sad tales of the death of kings. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. Take out the king, the battle's over, like a chess game. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised dogs will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified. He wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died that same day. When the Israelites, along the valley and across the Jordan, saw that the Israeli army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. 
and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off their heads, stripped off their armor, and sent their messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put Saul's armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his headless body to the walls of Beit Shan. So here we are looking at the tell. On the other side of the tell, facing the Jordan River, that's where they fastened the bodies of Saul, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. Headless bodies nailed to the wall. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, Jabesh Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan, and they could see the walls of Beit Shan at night. The moon rises in the east across the Jordan. It would shine on the walls, illuminating the bodies of Saul and his sons. The men of Jabesh Gilead, when they saw what the Philistines had done, all their valiant men marched through the night to Beit Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the walls of Beit Shan, and they went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. So Saul and his son's bodies, headless, nailed to the walls, are taken by the men of Jabesh Gilead and buried over on the other side. That opens the door for David to become king. But how can David become king? He's a wanted outlaw. 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. David was camped at Ziklag, which is way south. The Amalekites had invaded Ziklag while David was up here preparing to fight with the Philistines. But David went back, recaptured his town, and the Amalekites fled. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell upon the ground to pay him honor. So David's down at Ziklag. The Amalekites, David had defeated them. They fled north. And when they fled north, they would have gone up the Via Maris, as we did, and they would have continued right past Mount Gilboa in the Jezreel Valley. A young Amalekite went back to Ziklag. And David said, where have you come from? He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp up here. What happened, David asked? Tell me. David doesn't know what happened with the battle. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young Amalekite said, Well, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and the drivers in hot pursuit. 
And when he turned around and saw me, he called out, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? I answered, an Amalekite. Then he said to me, stand here and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. And wait, I thought Saul fell on his sword and died. But here, the young Amalekite said he was just wounded, and he told me to kill him. So I stood beside him, and I killed him. Because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And then he reached into his bag and pulled out Saul's crown. And he said, I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I brought them here to you, my Lord. He delivers the kingship to David. David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. David has been on the run from Saul, but David was married to Saul's daughter, Michal. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan. Jonathan was David's closest friend. Prince Jonathan, son of Saul, should have been king after his father died. But Jonathan, much like John the Baptist, said, I must decrease so David can increase. And all the while David was on the run working for the Philistines, Jonathan was feeding him information. A dangerous game to play. They wept for Saul and Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought the report, tell me again where you're from. He felt pretty good because he had just delivered the kingship to David. And he said, I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. And David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And the young man began to answer. David nodded to one of his men, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, I'll bet it was, nodded to him. And the young Amalekite just went to speak a sword flashed, shoop, and off went his head. And David said, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Now imagine, imagine that young Amalekite who uh, thought he was going to get a great reward. And just as he was about to speak again, suddenly his head was taken off by Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, with a sharp sword, so quick, so fast, that he didn't even know what hit him. He didn't know his head was cut off until he went to nod and it fell off. <laughs> and which always makes me wonder, how long does it take, if you have your head lopped off with a very sharp sword, how long does it take before you know it? <laughs> you still have consciousness, perhaps, as his head is falling toward the ground, and he sees sky, trees, he's going, oh crap, you know, <laughs> clunk, and down it went. Who killed Saul? Did Saul fall on his sword and die? 
Or did the young Amalekite kill him? Perhaps the young Amalekite, who had fled the battle against David, passed by Mount Gilboa and saw all the dead Israelites. It was nighttime. And he just came upon a treasure trove. We read that the Philistines went back the next day to strip the dead. But the young Amalekite got there earlier and maybe went through the bodies and took wallets and watches and iPhones, you know. And he just happened to find Saul, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua. He thought, I have won the lottery. I can deliver the kingship to David. He took the crown and back he went. Well, something was fishy to David. He knew it. And David lopped off his head. Well, now what? David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Yasher. The lament of the bow. I like to think of it as the lament of the rifle. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields, for there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan. In life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. That is one of the greatest laments ever written. And think what that did for David. All of his men heard this. It opens the door for David to step through to the kingship. He honors Saul. He honors Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. And the very next chapter, David returns to the tribe of Judah and becomes not the king of Judah, but the tribal warlord of Judah. And eventually, through political maneuvering, through, well, some targeted assassinations, He'll win the loyalty of the other tribes as well. 
and David will become an authentic king, the great king of Israel. But all of this happens right within what we're seeing, right here. Mount Gilboa, Beit Shan, the walls of Beit Shan, the other side, Jabesh Gilead across the river. It's all right here. When we travel to Israel in the footsteps of Jesus, and we see this, and we read the stories here on site, they'll never be the same again. You remember the story. It was raining. Bill said, Lord, I need the rain to stop. He gave us a rainbow, and it did. <laughs> and here we are. Here we are at Beit Shai. Thank you. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.